1: Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at com. Today, Nate welcomes back Peter Ames Carlin to discuss folk rock and singer-songwriter star Paul Simon. Email us at let it roll podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and Enjoy.
0: Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back Peter Ames-Carlin to talk about his book, Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon. Peter, welcome.
2: Uh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Sure. This is a big one for me. My mom had maybe seven, eight tracks in her Buick Riviera when I was a kid, and three of them were Simon and Garfunkel. So this is... This is really close to my heart here, but a lot of mixed feelings because Paul's kind of done the Chevy Chase thing. <laughs> um, but tell us about the book. And you start with this anecdote about their lawsuit with uh, Sid Prosen, who was one of their early record company guys before they were Simon and Garfunkel. Why'd you pick that particular anecdote to start with?
2: Well, to me, one of the most interesting things about Paul Simon's work, I mean, in his extremely long career is the sort of shape shifting that he's done over the years. I mean, starting as you know a, t- a pop teen idol, you know, with Artie Garfunkel when they called themselves Tom and Jerry, and their first hit in 1957 was called Hey Schoolgirl. You know, I mean, very very much out of the Brill Building, sort of pop rocks, uh, model, you know, for the, for the mid fifties. Um, and they, you know, he tried to score a lot of other hits sort of in that same kind of, uh, Pop mill fashion, um, and uh, but eventually, you know, they they sort of relaunched themselves in the early '60s as a folk act, Simon and Garfunkel, and um, this this question of identity, you know, I mean, even Simon and Garfunkel's work evolved pretty radically. By the time Paul's career started in the early '70s, he was, you know, playing gospel music and R and B music, and just continually evolving up through, you know, his fairly amazing reinvention in the mid eighties as a sort of world music person with Graceland and then Rhythm of the Saints. I mean, experimenting with all these different types of ethnic music, you know, from around the world. and it, it what brought it brought to mind for me was the whole idea of cultural assimilation, especially, you know, in the United States, but particularly among immigrants and the Jewish immigrants like Paul Simon's family and Artie Garfunkel's family and even my family. I mean, a lot of families, I mean almost everyone's family has has evolved from you know come from somewhere else um, to be in the New World, to be in the United States, and taken on different Elements of the local culture, um, you know, and gone through that sort of melting pot process of remaking yourself as an American. And this idea of reinvention and the sort of flexibility of identity has been such a big part of, of Paul's work, and so so central to uh, kind of the vitality of his music and the ongoing vitality um, that this idea of you know, what happened in 1967 with Sid Prosen is that he took, a, you know, after they had struck it big as Simon and Garfunkel, he still owned all the songs that they had recorded for him when they were calling themselves Tom and Jerry 10 years earlier. And so, you know, like any uh, <laughs> any any record man worth his salt, he took the asset that he already owned and had suddenly, you know, seemed to have new value to it and relaunched it. Um, And so he took all their old sort of high school pop hits and re-released them in a record uh, that he credited to Simon and Garfunkel. And Paul and Artie were like, wait a minute, this isn't cool at all. You know, it's 1967. It's sort of the height of, you know, or the beginning of the hippie era and their very, very serious sort of folk rock Musicians, I mean, there's I think their latest
0: cut in with a sentence that you wrote that sums up how rock stars were viewed at this point. It says musicians who mattered were expected to be not just artists, but also activists, generational spokesmen, and something like sages. So continue.
2: Yeah, you know, and that was a thing. I mean, they were, and they were, you know, uniquely even among the very, very serious sort of pop artists of, of the 60s, you know, they were uniquely serious and sober minded individuals, at least that's how they presented themselves. And so the idea that suddenly, hey, school girl in the second row, and, and all these other goofy pop songs that they had recorded 10 years earlier, were somehow back on the shelves. You know, with their grown up faces and name on it, that was like, no way are you going to do this. So they sued, uh, they sued Prosen and essentially succeeded in getting the record quashed, you know, taken from the shelves and tossed away, sort of under this idea that, which I thought was extraordinary, that um, Paul and Artie might have been Tom and Jerry, but Tom and Jerry were never Paul and Artie. You know, and Paul had worked under, you know, they both had stage names they worked under, you know, in part because that's what pop artists did in those days. Um, You know, he came up with a flashy name. Um, And also, I think that 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 came again from the sort of tradition you know in the Jewish community and elsewhere of taking you know if you really wanted to make it big in America, you took your you know your, your ethnic name and you retooled it, smoothed it down for American purposes. So the idea you know how could there possibly be a pop star named you know Arty uh, Garfunkel or Paul Simon you know too Jewish, too ethnic. And, um, you know, Paul's dad had been a professional musician, and and instead of working under his actual name of Lewis Simon, he was Lee Sims and spent his entire music career as Lee Sims. And people almost had, you know, alter egos, you know, these public figures that were entirely different creatures than who they knew themselves to be. And, you know, that was kind of the model that Paul and Artie were following, and therefore— uh, you know this idea of, you know, they they considered Simon and Garfunkel to be an assumed trade name. You know, <laughs> at least that was the case they made in court, which was kind of weird because it was just their 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 real names. But uh, uh, but that you know, in the context of Tom and Jerry being an assumed name, I guess they decided they were now they were trading under this new brand name, and they didn't want Sid Prosen to violate their uh, you know their trademark.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense because the choice to name them Simon and Garfunkel was discussed at the highest levels of CBS and Columbia, and we'll get to that. But first, let's play our first song. This is Tom and Jerry's Hey Schoolgirl. Hey, schoolgirl the second row.
3: The teacher's looking over, so i whisper way down low. You say, Bop, and Let's meet at the school girl.
0: was a very young paul simon and art Gar- garfunkel performing as tom and jerry doing their best everly brothers impression with hey Schoolgirl," and that was a pretty significant regional and even national hit
2: yeah it was you know i mean and for a couple of kids who were just you know sophomores juniors in high school um it was uh, a very very heady experience i mean these were they were you know they were rock and roll crazy like like you know uh most kids in in the mid nineteen uh, fifties, but but also very musically talented, and with Paul's dad working uh, as a professional musician, he was a bass player, sort of a session man, mostly who had his own jazz band. Again, working under the name Lee Sims, but so Paul was aware of how the industry worked, and so for him, pop stardom wasn't just an abstraction. This was something that actually happened. You know, to people that his dad and he, by extension, knew. You know, I mean, they knew exact. He knew had a really good idea of what it took to take your dream of being a pop star and turning it into something like a career or at least a a career opportunity. You know, he sort of understood the mechanics of it, and so he and Artie would get together in the afternoons after school and sing together. You know, they they met in school and. And Paul was, you know, the first time he really, uh, you know, as a fourth grader, the first time that he really became aware of Artie was when Artie stood up to sing at an assembly at school. And he had that beautiful sort of bell clear voice. And all the confidence in the world to stand up in front of, you know, hundreds of his peers and belt out this Nat King Cole song, which Paul thought was just extraordinary. And he wanted a piece of that. And so he eventually connected with Artie and they you know their sort of mutual love of music and the fact that they lived only a few blocks apart from each other in Kew Gardens Hills and Queens and New York City. Um, you know, they they spent all this time just, you know, obsessing over how they were going to be able to string their voices together and singing other songs and trying to write their own songs and after several tries, they came up with hey Schoolgirl and uh, Sid Prozen, this fellow who was a producer and record you know publisher and record company owner and you know all those things in New York, overheard them while they were recording a demo and was like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 I want to sign you guys and uh, so he signed them to a deal and and uh, paul 's father uh helped negotiate the deal with uh Sid Prosens record company and um and managed to write into the deal not only a uh a solo uh, deal for his dance band, you know, or excuse me, a, a deal for his is the Lee Sims Orchestra to, re- to record for Sid Prosen's label. But also that Paul would re- could also record as a solo artist, which was not something that they mentioned to the Garfunkels when they presented them with this completed contract. And therein lies, you know, the, the, the roots of the original sin in the Simon and Garfunkel disagreement.
0: absolutely and i want to clarify for the listeners i'm going to focus on the early part of the career your book covers his whole life really well but this particular melange of influences on paul simon was something i didn't understand until i read your book i mean he's a combination of everly brothers obsessive you know also into buddy holly and elvis and that first wave of rock and rollers very into doo-wop from the crows on also 50s pop he mentions patty page i went to your wedding as one of his favorite early songs but then he's in the Brill Building throughout this whole period between Tom and Jerry and Simon and Garfunkel cutting records on the weekends, doing demos. Um, He and Carol King have a demo cutting service together that's separate from her songwriting partnership with Gary Goffin and separate from Paul's stuff. And then they get into this pop folk period, you know, the Kingston Trio and the Limelighters and all these kind of acts were so big at that time and you know they Simon and Garfunkel get back together after their first acrimonious split and try to make it in New York with that but that doesn't quite work even gets on Columbia then he goes to England and brings in you know these influences like Davy Graham and Bert Johns this kind of guitar playing that I mean ages ahead of american folkies as far as bringing in that british folk influence which is a very different scene from the american scene so um that's what i want to cover is this journey to simon and garfunkel that, that they undertook and in the opening chapter you also mentioned this um this period where he had had a a, a writer's block throughout you know there's no simon and garfunkel album from 1967 they're huge in 65 huge in 66 and then gone in 67 and, and that's because he had this writer's block. And he comes out of it with the song Faking It. And this was a song I've heard a million times. And I never once thought what the lyrics, I have the tailor's face and hands, meant. What did that mean?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because Paul knew his grandfather. You know, the original, you know, the member of his family, the patriarch who had come from uh, I think Romania to the United States in the teens was or early even before that, 1903 perhaps. I mean it was maybe in the first decade of the 20th century. Um came to the US with the name Paul Simon and he worked in eventually, you know, found his own founded his own uh tailor store in in Newark, you know, that sort of thriving Jewish community just across the Hudson from uh from um uh, from New York City, uh, you know, where Philip Roth was born and raised, and was you know such a huge part of 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 his uh, of his writing and and his identity. and so the Simons and and Paul's father, Louis, um was raised in in Newark, and that's where Paul was born and uh, spent the first years of his life before his family moved into Kew Gardens Hills, you know over in the city. Um, but this idea and, and he talked about it in his interviews that it had been on that he had not known that his grandfather that, that he had a an ancestor who was a tailor. Um, I don't know if that's possible. I mean the, but but again it speaks to the idea of assimilation and this idea of reinvention and remaking yourself and and becoming a, a citizen of the new world um and abandoning, you know, all the things that that You know, that once mattered in the old world up to and including apparently, you know, his at least acknowledging that he knew who his grandfather was um, and what he did for a living. And, you know, I mean, and, and obviously being a tailor was a skill that he brought with him from from Eastern Europe. That's something that gets passed down. And so it's very old fashioned, the idea of a tailor who makes cloaks. I mean, if you're a brand spanking, you know, electrified new world kid, you, you know, you don't want to be identified with the tailor, you know, who probably still speaks Yiddish around the house uh, and, you know, buys things out of the pickle barrels you know, in <laughs> in the Jewish neighborhood, you know, in the little shtetl that they had there in Newark, you know, just sort of a, a, a kind of a recreation of the Lower East Side there just across the river. Um, and so when Paul was, you know, giving interviews and discussing the song in 1967, he said, you know, I, that 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 line came to me. And then I was completely knocked out to discover that I had an ancestor named Paul Simon, who was a tailor. Like, what a weird coincidence, you know, what a sort of moment of spiritual transcendence. But I'm like, you know, it's like it's hard for me to believe that he could not have known who his grandfather was and what he did. I mean, it's like one of the first questions you know a kid asks <laughs> their parents it's like well who are your parents like what do they do where did you grow up i mean par- i mean these are the types of stories that get passed down i mean so in you know but of course if there is a chance that lewis never ever uh took the kids to to meet his parents and never ever uh described to paul and and his Little brother Eddie, you know, who their grandfather was and what he did for a living. I mean, that tells a whole other new world story. But one way or the other, the disconnection between the generations and between, you know, the immigrant generation and the American born generation is compelling to me.
0: And let's hear our next song. This is The Lone Teen Ranger by Jerry Landis, aka Paul
3: Simon.
0: (laughs) He
1: goes bang, bang. the lone, lone Teen Ranger.
0: that was The Lone Teen Ranger by Jerry Landis, which was the uh, nom de rock that Paul Simon used in his brill building years. But back to his father. Um, his father, like you said, was a professional bassist and band leader, but he wasn't your typical sort of band leader i mean he was more than a band leader and 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 both he and his son paul and artie are part of this sort of relentless march into the upper middle class that that jewish many jewish americans were undergoing in this time how did lewis simon feel about his career as a bass player and leader and and what did he really want to do well you know i think
2: certainly for the first half of his life for the first two thirds of his life he he wanted to be a professional musician. I mean, he was living the dream. He was, you know, as a teenager, he discovered that he had a talent for music and began playing the bass. And and was, you know, obviously so gifted that he was working, you know, you know, and and, and joined the union while he was still a teenager. And uh, uh, you know, was 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 getting hired to be on, you know, to play to play, you know, fill in with bands all around um New Jersey. And then eventually, when he you know, went to NYU. He um, uh, transferred his his union membership to the New York City branch and was picking up shows and sessions there, um, and uh, you know, and studying music. I think he was a music major, and um, and so he really wanted to be a successful musician, and he became a fairly successful guy. You know, he played a lot. He was in like radio orchestras and TV orchestras. And so he would just play recording sessions, he would play live shows, whatever, you know, he was like a, you know, a pretty, you know, a first call bass player. So he was getting shows all, you know, gigs all over town. Um, But he also launched his own kind of society dance band, the Lee Sims Orchestra. So, you know, if you were getting married or having a party or some sort of event and you needed music for it, you know, he was the Lee Sims Orchestra was one of the, you know, one of the acts that, you know, that had a clientele in and around the city. Um, but he would also write original songs and try to sell those and and just wasn't, you know, he was gifted, but, you know, some people are pretty gifted and then some people are Paul Simon and he was not, he didn't have enough talent to launch the kind of showbiz You know, major success career that he wanted to have. And I think also probably he was tired of working at night. He was tired of probably, you know, the lack of of consistency in music and decided he wanted to get into education and went to graduate school and got a master's uh, and then eventually, I I think, possibly a a Ph.D., in education, and began. He taught high school for a while in New York City, uh, and then eventually was a lecturer at, I believe, New York University. Um, uh, I may be wrong. About, I can't. Uh, I think it was NYU. Maybe it was uh, one of the other city colleges. I can't remember now. Yeah, but perhaps- he
0: purposes that's that's mood. but the the thing that i th- was found fascinating about paul simon and garfunkel is that even though they were pursuing music very seriously i mean they're putting in the hours on their musical craft they're both also pursuing um college careers what what how did they do that parallel tracking and, and what were their respective straight job or straight career choices
2: even in the midst of success with um, Tom and Jerry, in the interviews that they were giving, they were saying, well, you know, we're only going to do this for a few months because we're both going to college in the fall and, uh, you know, and as a result uh, you know, this pop music thing is, is just sort of a a dig, you know, a, a digression. It's just something we're doing for fun on our way to our real careers as lawyers and architects. You know, Paul sort of had an eye toward being an attorney, and Artie was very interested in math and architecture, and um, and so as they and, and they were part again of that of that sort of aspiring sort of middle class of of you know descend you know of, of descendants of, of, of immigrants who wanted their kids to become white collar, upper middle class, you know, well-to-do American citizens, you know, who live that life of privilege, you know, the American dream as, as, as we like to think of it. And so, um, you know, after that first brush with fame, you know, with, with Tom and Jerry, you know, Artie got accepted into Columbia University, and Paul got accepted into Queens College, which was a, a city college, so a public school in New York City. But really, the gem of that system it was, uh, in, it was a um, you know the highest rated school for the most serious students, and you know it was a commuter school, but they had really good teachers and and a really interesting uh, uh, curriculum. And Paul went there, you know, with probably some sense of, you know, uh, probably wishing he could have gotten into the Ivy League like Artie did, but just didn't for whatever reason. And uh, and so they kind of made a show, you know, they both essentially invested themselves in becoming the upper middle class, you know, well-to-do professionals that their parents had sort of raised them to be because I don't, you know, it's hard to raise your kids to be pop stars. Like it's hard to imagine a career track for that, you know, and it's not a very reliable game, you know, even if you do score a few hits, especially back in those days, people's careers were generally pretty short. Um, And you had to figure out what your second act was going to be pretty fast. And so the whole time that uh, they were in high school and then in college, when Paul was still writing songs and, trying to kind of build a career in his Jerry Landis sort of pop star slash, you know, pop songwriter mode. He was also, you know, studying English and being a very serious student at Queens College, uh, you know, under his actual name, Paul Simon.
0: And then to backtrack just a little bit, because I think it's so notable, the they were they hit the Brill Building when Paul was 13 to co- and he copyrights his first song The Girl for Me, does a demo and is shopping it up and down the the halls of the Brill Building, which is just, I mean these guys were were persistent and diligent and and figured out how things worked really really early and there's one other character I want to introduce before we go forward because he's going to come back in the end and this is this guy I'm not sure I know how to pronounce his last name right but it's Charlie Merenstein. Of Apollo Records. Now I've come across Apollo Records on the Mahalia Jackson uh, episode I'm working on, and you know that's what they're best known for is, is Mahalia. But a ton of gospel and jazz. Did Dizzy Gillespie records and stuff. What was his relationship with Charlie Marenstein, and and how did Charlie help him in this period?
2: It was a very fortuitous coincidence. Paul was playing baseball as a you know ten year old or eleven year old. And he happened upon this father and son um who were playing catch, and you know Paul didn't get to spend a lot of casual hours just tossing the ball with his dad because his dad worked in the afternoons and the evenings. That's you know how the music industry you know that's when the music industry runs, it's not really a nine to five type of gig and so when Paul had slack time uh you know baseball throwing time, you know more often than not, his dad wouldn't around. And so he came across his father and son, and the Marensteins, um, you know, it was a very, very interesting family, and Charlie was an interesting guy, and a very good athlete, and a very good uh, coach. And so he saw this, 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 you know, young guy by himself, and he sort of said, hey, you want to play with us? And he had a son named Ronnie, who was exactly Paul's age, and so Paul and Ronnie became You know, best friends. They were both like obsessive baseball players. And uh, and, you know, and Charlie was we coached them. You know, he was a seasoned, you know, little league coach and uh, invested a lot of time and energy in helping the boys get better at baseball. And then, you know, but also, as it turned out, coincidentally enough, he had come to New York to run Apollo Records, which had been founded by his sister and brother-in-law about 15 years earlier, this gospel label. And um, he didn't have any experience in the music industry, but for one reason or another, uh, they said, well, why don't you come and be the, you know, the, I think his sister had become sickly and and wasn't up to running it anymore. And so why don't you come and run the label, which he did. And uh, so when Paul was beginning to develop this, you know, this passion and this desire to make it in the music industry, not only did he have his dad helping to show him the ropes, but he also had Charlie Marenstein. Who ran a record label and had songwriting credits through, you know, one way or the other, and and knew how all of this stuff worked, and was really hooked up, and had friends who ran small record labels all around, um, you know, uh, the the you know Midtown, the West Side of Midtown, which is where the industry was based at the time in New York City, and so he helped Paul connect with these guys and get contracts to work you know to to write songs and to do sort of small production gigs and and that kind of thing. And so Charlie was a really key part of Paul's early career and was in fact Tom and Jerry's manager when they had their moment of glory. He was the guy that you went to talk to to, to book them for a sock hop or you know he was the guy that the people at American Bandstand went to when they wanted to get Tom and Jerry to come, you know, lip sync their song in front of the kids at uh, on TV. So Charlie was really, you know, and then they began writing songs together. They wrote like, a, they copyrighted like a dozen or 15 Paul, you know, Jerry Landis, Charlie Marentine
0: songs. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, and then we'll talk about Paul Simon's college years. There's a couple of images <laughs> from the Tom and Jerry uh, era. I just have to get out. One is One is the picture of young Paul and Artie in the dressing room at American bandstand with Jerry Lee Lewis at the peak of his <laughs> incandescent powers. So I just had to get that visual out there. And then the punt, the end of the story is that, you know, they have their run, they have their hit single, they do American bandstand, they play sock hops, they're kind of local stars. They do a little bit of touring, but then the follow-ups stiff and they get dropped. They ultimately have to sue pros and for royalties. They get 1500 to split Paul Simon buys an Impala, a Chevy Impala, which promptly burns up on the road. So that's just the perfect sort of summary of here's the material rewards of your hit single, nothing. Um, but then he goes on to college. What's his next step? And, and how's his musical development go through? These are the Jerry Landis years. But he also gets, you know, uh, puts himself out there as a manager. And for a while, he's he's running this uh, Tico and the Triumphs, which is kind of a sub Dion and the Belmonts kind of group.
2: Yeah, that was another, you know, one of the first things that he and Artie did when they were young teenagers and and getting into singing together was, you know, they were both very enamored of of, um, doo-wop music, which was the big thing at the time, particularly in New York City. And so there were these street corner doo-wop quartets, you know, all over the place. And so he and Artie found a couple other kids who who could sing, and they formed a little doo-wop group, you know, and they would sing uh you know cover other people's songs like you do and maybe wrote one or two of their own to try to sing on their own. Um and so then eventually they lost the other two kids and it was just Paul and Artie and Tom and you know and then became Tom and Jerry. And um but at the same time, you know, Jer- you know Paul had again written into that contract with Crozen's company this idea that he could also record on his own, you know, as either as Jerry Landis um, or under another pseudonym which which Prozen invented for him which was this one song uh, that was credited to true Taylor um, which he did secretly and without Artie's knowledge which led to their first feud and and the years that they spent not working together in the uh, the late 50s to early 60s though um, so they were a lot more in touch than they ever you know than they would admit later um, but you know, he was sort of working on two tracks at the time. On one hand, he would spend his mornings and early afternoons as Paul Simon, the, the, you know, the, the undergraduate at Queens College, who was very involved in his fraternity and eventually became the president of the fraternity, you know, who was an intellectual and talked a lot about going to law school and, or going to some, you know, and, and talked about literature and, 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 but in the afternoons, a lot of kids at Queens College—it was very much a kind of working-class, upwardly mobile type of uh, type of institution. Um, uh, a lot of these kids had jobs after school, and they'd go work in a shoe store or you know wait tables somewhere or do the usual stuff kids do. Paul would jump on uh, the F train and uh, ride it into Midtown and be trying to sell songs or or recording demos. Uh, Uh, For small record companies, uh, you know, in the Brill Building or around, you know, 7th Avenue, all those, you know, all the companies that were stationed in these buildings up and down 7th Avenue where uh, 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 Tin Pan Alley kind of existed. Uh, And he was just trying to be like a, a working songwriter, sort of producer slash kind of remake himself as a kind of younger Sid Prozen you know, having a publishing company, having his own record, you know, trying to have his own record company, trying to find acts and sign them and write stuff and produce songs for him, you know, and eventually he didn't actually really try to launch his own record company, but he did join a company called a small indie company that was struggling called Amy Records and was their head of A&R, you know, the, the artist and repertoire guy for at least a couple months, you know, maybe it was just a fill in gig or something, but you know, and then he worked for a publishing company and would go around trying to sell their songs to to other, you know, you know, to, to, to managers or producers and for their artists to cover, um, you know, and, and but that was Jerry Landis. And what was compelling to me is, you know, speaking to his college friends and not all of them even knew that Paul had had this career as Jerry Landis, this one guy who was you know, who said Paul was his best friend when he was in college. They spent a lot of time together. He was his frat brother. and Paul brought him into the frat and and really helped this guy kind of launch himself in college and, you know, and into his career. You know, when I asked him what he thought about Paul's uh, Jerry Landis era, he said, who's Jerry Landis? He had never heard of him before. You know, and meanwhile, you know, Paul's writing and in some, you know, in some instances performing these songs and none of them became big hits. But a small handful of them, you know, got into the lower reaches of the top 100 or the top 200, you know, so they were somebody was buying them and listening to them. And there were ads, you know, that you could find in Billboard and Variety, you know, Jerry Landis is on his way up. You know, there's this picture of a goofily smiling young Paul with this hair piled up on top of his head, you know, pretending to be you know, or being Jerry Landis. And the fact that his close friend from Queens College, um, who he confided in about a whole variety of things, had no idea that Paul even was doing this during college is, you know, again, I mean, talk about identity and assuming, you know, an assimilation and assuming different personae for, you know, the different facets of your of your personality.
0: And let's go ahead and hear our next tune. And this is um let's see, he was my brother by Paul Simon. Need a
1: writer, they
0: cursed my brother to his face. Go
1: home outsider. Mississippi's gonna be. Place.
0: He that was he was my brother from the Paul Simon songbook, which was an album that came out in England only uh, in 1965, after actually the release of the Simon and Garfunkel first album on Columbia. And and this is a version that makes explicit reference to a classmate of his, um, Andy Goodman, I think. Name, right, who was one of the martyrs of the Freedom Riders, who was murdered in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And this is a period of time when, as you describe it, that Paul had started constructing a bridge between the English major and the pop songwriter holed up in the opposite hemispheres of his brain. So he's like years ahead of John Lennon, who's going to do the same thing after he's exposed to Bob Dylan. But Paul had been exposed to Bob Dylan by this point, correct? Because he actually hips Al Cooper to Bob Dylan. Tell us a little bit about the sort of love-hate relationship between Paul and Bob Dylan, maybe between Paul and his imagination of Bob Dylan.
2: Well, uh, that moment that you talked about a second ago when, you know, Paul began to build that bridge between his intellectual sort of literary side and his musical side was, you know, a lot of that was sort of about this discovery of folk music, which was, you know, having a moment of, Rediscovery, you know, and popularity among, you know, particularly among sort of, you know, intellectual, you know, uh, sort of progressive, young, intellectual kids, you know, I mean, and that whole, you know, the folk music scene in, in Greenwich Village in New York City was thriving and bands like the Kingston Trio were having hits. I mean, even the Weavers in the late 40s and early 50s, you know, Pete Seeger and, uh, you know, his first band, the Quartet. um so there was this resurgence in kind of traditional American music, which came, you know, with this sort of overlay, particularly in the late 50s and early 60s, of political activism. The idea, you know, in the sort of model of Woody Guthrie, the folk music being the, you know, the working class music that sort of told the story of, of everyday working Americans. And uh, that was a very politically potent idea Um, in the late 50s and early 60s. And so Paul, even during the Jerry Landis era, would sing folk songs on campus as Paul Simon, and began in the early 60s, I think, also to experiment with writing kind of folk songs. And this became particularly, you know, an urgent part of his idea, a more prominent part of his identity, once he became exposed to Dylan's early work, because Bob Dylan had come out of Minnesota, and um, and began, you know, and very much in the model of following in the footsteps of of Woody Guthrie, began to create this identity. You know, he was Bobby Zimmerman back back in kibbing minnesota and eventually made his way east to new york and relaunched himself as you know bob dylan sort of itinerant pokey and uh you know rail riding circus performing you know native of the the weird old america as, as somebody would 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 coin it later and so um Paul was both inspired by and intimidated by and very resentful of this young Bob Dylan because essentially he and Dylan were trying to occupy the same set of shoes, being the kind of assimilationist Jewish singer-songwriter, folky, you know, hipster. Uh, But but Dylan beat him to it, I think. But Paul had already began to evolve in that direction, and as he evolved, so too did his – his nom the guitar because he he released the song uh, uh, a sing a pop folk single under the name Paul Kane, um, and uh, one of the songs that he wrote early on was the song He Was My Brother, which was about the civil rights you know uh, some civil rights martyrs who who end up getting killed by the Klan in uh, in the South, which was something that was happening, is mainly enough uh you know I would not you know I don't know if regularly is the right word, but was 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 starting to happen happened repeatedly in the early sixties, and actually he wrote that song. he was my brother several months before his classmate Andy Goodman, along it's with
0: Alan Goodman, I got that wrong earlier I wanted to correct
2: it's me. andy Andy Goodman
0: oh, it is I typed it as Alan. okay, well good, I'm good yeah, to get yeah. That right that's not one i I want to get wrong the last thing I want to do is disrespect the it's okay. of Philadelphia.
2: Yeah, no, it's fine. And he went down with the uh, in the summer of '64, and he was my brother. I think was actually copyrighted in late '63, and he went down with the Freedom Riders and was kidnapped and murdered by uh, Klansmen. And uh, in the summer of '64, the they you know the, they were missing for weeks or months, and then eventually their bodies were discovered. And Paul had a long and uh, somewhat I mean, eventually developed a, a relationship with the Goodman family and, were, you know, played fundraisers and did some things to help keep Andy's spirit alive. But um, but it was interesting that, you know, after the the killings, when that was in the headline, Paul sort of, uh, re, <laughs> sort of relaunched He Was My Brother, saying he had written it in response to Andy's death, when actually it was just one of these weird things of anticipating it
0: and and he and arty have gotten back together and they're performing as kane and gar and they're doing the whole circuit uh, cafe wa the gaslight Garrett's folk city um you know all these famous places but they never quite fit in with that scene why did they not click with the greenwich village folk scene
2: the greenwich village scene was very much about you know this idea of being um working class and being part of uh, uh, you know, kind of coming out of the dirt. You know, I mean, Dylan relaunched himself. His, his, you know, his dad uh, owned a, a furniture company in, uh, you know, a furniture store in Hibbing. I mean, they were middle class, mer- you know, merchant class, you know, uh, a Jewish family up there. And uh, but when uh, he began to perform as a folky, you know, he very quickly came up with the pseudonym and this sort of alter ego of Bob Dylan, you know, who is kind of a, you know, a creature of, of the soil. And so, um, there was this, you know, and, and again, there was this longstanding tradition in, uh, uh, you know, in the pop world, definitely of, of, of ditching your, 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 your ethnic or, or boring name and, and relaunching yourself as, As, you know, Frankie Avalon, you know, it's not the guy's name, actually, you know, and even guys like um, one of the most influential uh, folk musicians uh, now as well as then was Ramblin' Jack Elliott, um, you know, who, who was sort of developed this identity as a kind of itinerant cowboy singer, you know, who had these weird songs about, you know, roping horses and you know and doing you know roping steer and riding horses and all that stuff but actually his real name is elliot adnopause and he's the son of a you know a jewish doctor from queens which is a lovely you know and wonderful thing to be but but it wasn't actually his his actual identity and uh you know dylan uh oddly enough found that hilarious that that Ramblin' Jack was actually Elliot Adennapos, but what he wasn't telling his friends at the time was that he was actually Bobby Zimmerman um but a lot of, you know but the thing is this idea of being um like legitimacy sort of flowed from the reality of your experience and the extent to which you were projecting your real working you know up from the dirt experience in 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 you know uh. in in folk songs um, was key to the idea of being a successful or legitimate folk performer. And uh, Paul and Artie were just a little too twee, you know, they were, they wore their their middle class and intellectual aspirations um, on their sleeves. And that kind of clashed with this more sort of romantic, I sort of rugged uh, folk singer ideal. That Dylan had managed to, you know, personify, even given the fact that his background was a lot more like uh, theirs than, you know, than he admitted. But, you know, they wore ties. They were sort of, you know, they kind of bridged the gap between Dylan and that sort of intellectual singer songwriter stuff and the Kingston trio who were more of a clean cut sort of showing up on Ed Sullivan show, you know, type of pop folk musicians but Paul and Artie you know they they wanted to have hit songs like like the Kingston Trio and they had grown up understanding how the industry worked and work and knowing that it was a good idea to to take a shower and comb your hair if you were going to you know and put on some nice clothes if you were going <laughs> to perform you know whereas Absolutely. Dylan and these other you know people that you know their performance costume was more rough-hewn yeah. it was like work shirts and jeans and and dirty boots you know and uh, Paul Artie didn't take naturally to that, um, and were more, probably more politically conservative, you know, certainly more moderate um, than the kind of more lefty, socialist, even borderline communist type of politics that you know animated the the folk music scene in Greenwich Village.
0: Let me jump in and get our last uh, song. This is Bleecker Street by Simon and Garfunkel from their first album, Wednesday Morning at 3 A.M.
3: Rolling in off the east river bank, like a shroud, it covers Baker Street, fills the alleys where men sleep, hides the shepherd.
0: And that was Bleecker Street by Simon and Garfunkel uh, from their first album, Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. And I think the big difference is that Dylan was hip to Harry Smith's uh, anthology of folk music, which was really a collection of pop records that had been released in the 20s and 30s and then was rebranded as folk by Harry Smith. And Simon and Garfunkel were just not into that kind of, uh, you know, I guess, authentic or old weird American roots kind of thing. But there's one more bit that I want to get to is is Paul Simon... How did he get his deal with Columbia? He, he did it as a song. He was working as a song plugger um, and he meets Tom Wilson. How does, how does that story go down?
2: Well, yeah, he was working for a um, song publisher and, uh, you know, his job was to take whatever, you know, that week's batch of songs that they wanted, you know, that they thought might work uh, with, you know, other with, you know, producers and record companies who wanted to give it to their their artists you know that's how the industry worked in those days and uh and you were forbidden the rules forbade you from pitching your own songs even though a lot of people you know who ended up working for them were in fact you know aspiring songwriters just like Paul was but Paul uh decided to make his own rules which is what you often have to do in this country if you want to make it and so uh When he went to Columbia to pitch some stuff to Tom Wilson, who was Bob Dylan's producer, um, he brought him Sound of Silence, which was, you know, his his most recent composition. And Tom Wilson heard it and was like, yo, wait, this is real good. You know, it's like I'd sign this guy. Who's this guy? Like, Well, that guy actually happens to be me. And he's like, got it, got it. And so that's how they got this deal with with Columbia. Uh, to record a Simon and Garfunkel and um, you know and they sat with Tom Wilson to be making you know a very folky record their first record um, and uh, uh, you know so it was all acoustic I think they had a bass player and uh, and then another guy that they brought in to play second guitar and Paul and Artie's you know, harmonies. Uh, on a lot of traditional folk songs and just a small you know two or three or four of paul's early uh folk originals and um at you know the record was a big flop, and paul you know already went back to college and uh or was you know and uh and then Paul took his guitar over to England to see because there was a very thriving uh folk music scene there that he thought would be interesting to join. And he had met a kid who uh, was, had co-founded a folk club um, and had essentially, you know, invited Paul to come and and perform there at any time, um, which Paul took him up on much to his surprise when Paul showed up at his door. But, um, and he began to build a following as a solo artist, working under his own name. Um, And, uh, but in the midst of doing this and getting, you know, shows and and really beginning to make his way in that kind of London and England folk music scene, which is a very stratified type of situation, uh, Tom Wilson, um, sort of taking a lesson from the birds' success of, you know, making turn 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 and and taking, you know, basically coming basically splitting the difference between the Beatles and the folk revival. And he overdubbed, uh, called in some some electric musicians who had been playing on a Dylan session and overdubbed electric guitar and drums and electric bass onto the original recording of Sound of Silence and released it in uh, the fall of 1965. And it was an immediate uh, smash and began to rocket up the charts and which came to the surprise and at least stated dismay of Paul the you know, the folk singer in the British clubs, who considered himself to be a very, very serious folky and didn't want to be confused with a pop star up until suddenly he had a pop hit in America. And as as Al Stewart said, you know, he was moaning and complaining, you know, and he, he knew Al Stewart, the other folk you know, pop musician, um, who became famous, you know, a decade, you know, twelve years later with You're the Cat. Um, But he uh, he was uh, sharing a flat with Al Stewart and some other people. And when he first got his 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 copy of the electric version, The Sound of Silence, he played it with Al Stewart and was just like, oh, this is so horrible. I don't want this to happen. I can't believe this is happening. And, and, you know, it's like they didn't ask me. This is terrible. I just want to be an artist. I just want to be a folk artist. But as Al Stewart said, the next thing he knew, Paul had buggered off for the U.S. and never came back. Uh, you know, that and therein began, you know. There, therein were the seeds of, of Simon and Garfunkel, the pop legends.
0: And and for the last bit, I want to cover is he makes a phone call back to his mentor, Charlie Marenstein, um and gets and gets Charlie's take on this whole thing. And then, what does he do when he gets back to America? Does Charlie hear from him right away, or?
2: Well, he told he called Charlie, and according, you know, and I heard all this from Charlie's son, um, Ron, who said, uh, you know, the phone, you know, Paul had worked very closely with Charlie during his Jerry Landis years, and Charlie had helped connect him to, you know, the people who brought him in to, you know, to work as a songwriter or to or to be a kind of a staff producer, or you know, and 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 helped him, you know, connect him with. People and you know got him a lot of breaks. I mean, which then of course you know you can open you can crack open a door for somebody, but they're going to have to have their own skills to you know to really go inside and make it their own. And of course, Paul could deliver on on whatever it was that Charlie promised to people. And um, but when Paul was in England and he began to hear that this song was climbing the charts, he didn't really know. I mean, it was hard for him to tell from all the way across the ocean what was being said to him and whether it was real or not real. And so he called Charlie and he said, what's, you know, like, I hear this is a hit, is this really a hit? And Charlie, you know, who of course was following the industry was like, Oh yeah, this is a big hit. And, uh, like you probably want to come back for this. And so, um, Paul said, okay, I'm going to fly in and I will call you the moment I get there and we'll, you know, you'll help me, you know, Maximize whatever's going to happen here because Charlie was the guy again who had served as Tom and Jerry's manager when he had that first little brush with success in 1957, and so Charlie was like, "Sure, okay, cool, I can," you know, "I'm up for that." And Paul came back, and uh, I think right around the time that uh, "Sound of Silence," you know, hit the top of the charts and Billboard, and uh, Charlie so never rang. He never did get in touch with Charlie, at least not for many, many years, and. Uh, and uh and so again, I mean it was, I think what he realized was reinventing himself as Paul Simon, uh one half of the folk rock duo Simon and Garfunkel, um, was gonna require somebody other than Char you know, someone bigger and more sophisticated than Charlie Marenstein, uh, you know, to you know, to be their business partner. And uh they found that guy, <laughs> you know. Um <laughs> and and had a long and uh and wonderful relationship with him and uh you know and uh, but it was again you know uh, it was that moment of reinvention when paul realized like i'm going to have to cut ties with what came before and uh and real to to go all in on on what i need to do now um and, you know into this other person i'm going to become and so instead of you know, once he had been a, a teen idol, then he became, you know, sort of a, just a, you know, a show business, indie music macher, you know, and then he became a folky and then he became sort of a British folky. And now he was relaunching himself as a smart, young pop star. And it wouldn't be long before, you know, he traded in his work boots and, and donkey coat for, you know, sleek British boots with Cuban heels and a cape and, you know, all that sort of pop star finery of the mid 60s, the early psychedelia stuff. And like uh, his
0: grandfather used to make.
2: Exactly, except different.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of a twist. And yeah, there's so much great stuff in the book that we don't have time to cover. I want to reference just a couple of things. The the work of Simon and Garfunkel as co-producers, particularly with Roy Haley on, on bookends and and Bridge Over Troubled Water, now I know where that came from, from his apprenticeship of making all these demos in the in the Brill Building. And then he has this infamous falling out with Walter Yetnikoff, the president of CBS, in the 70s. And we talked a little bit about that when, when I interviewed him about Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers becomes his safe haven where he's – you know, rescued and carried through kind of a lull in his career and then comes back with Graceland. And I've got a Walter Yetnikoff episode that's about to drop, and we'll talk a lot about the the feud there. So um, my guest has been Peter Ames Carlin. The book is Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon. And thanks so much for helping us fill in some of these pieces. This is a, a big piece of the folk rock puzzle. And Simon and Garfunkel were totally generis, very different from the birds or the mamas and the papas or even Jefferson Airplane or, or Dylan. Very unique background that, that set them up really to thrive as folk rock musicians. So, Peter, thanks so much for coming back.
2: My pleasure, Nathan. Thanks for having me.
1: Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes Kellefa Sane to discuss his book Major Labels: A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Let it roll as a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.